you have a Bible, uh, feel free to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. If not, feel free to just listen uh, this morning as we go through this next to last chapter in our journey of 1 Samuel. Next week we will be finished with 1 Samuel. It's been quite a journey uh, understanding this unbelievable story and really how our story is within it. I hope that you've sensed that and felt that uh, and, and been moved by that reality. Let me start by asking this question. Have you ever come home, either you've been gone for just a short bit, or you've maybe been gone on vacation, and you've come home, and you have found things not as you left them? Has that ever happened? Uh, Sometimes have you come home and found somewhat of a calamity in your house? Uh, So when when we lived in King of Prussia, uh, I had this idea to, to get a dog. Uh, who is now Sophie, and she's, she's graduated from being a dog to a cat. We've had this discussion before. Um, <laughs> but she was a puppy, and she was, she was great, and she's still great, but different. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's different greatness, you know. And so my getting a puppy happened when Rachel was seven months pregnant with Tyler. And so, you know, I, I don't oftentimes think things through. It just seemed like a great idea, and we went for it. And Rachel and I have had plenty of discussions about how that wasn't the best thing uh, since then. But at any rate, uh, so we had Sophie for a while, and she's great, and Tyler was born. And one of the great realities of, of having babies for me, one of the things we got in our gift registry or for a baby shower was this diaper trash can. You ever have one of those when you have kids? And you put it in, and you twist the lid, and it... It twists them around, and then when you're done, you have this long, almost necklace for a giant of used diapers, right? It's this weird reality. So, we had something to do one night, or we're off somewhere, and we put Sophie in her crate. You kind of know where the story is going. And somehow the crate wasn't fully locked, I guess, because when we came home, not only was Sophie not in her crate, but the diapers were no longer in the diaper trash can. They were everywhere through our entire house. Have you ever come home to a calamity? Things are not as you left them. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, David is coming back off a high. If you remember, he has taken his men up to the king Achish, and the king has wanted David's help in battling the Israelites. And now David is going to be forced into battle against his own people. But God spares them, and through the other Philistine leaders who are suspicious of David, and rightly so, David does not have to fight against his own people, and he's sent back to his town. So you can imagine this like dodging a bullet moment for David. They are probably singing the whole way home, back to Ziklag, and uh, just thrilled to have avoided this calamity. And when they get home... Things are not how they left them. See, when they get home, they find the entire town ransacked. And all of their houses burned. And all of their family gone. Can you imagine the roller coaster ride of David and his men? Marching off to a battle against their own men, low. Finding out that they are spared from it by God, high, coming home to find everything in their worldly possessions, including their families, gone, low. And this has been David's experience throughout his whole life. You remember sometimes 
He's confronting Saul, and Saul's saying, you're going to be king, I'll never harm you again, and then the next minute, David's on the run again. He's constantly in this roller coaster reality of life that it is in a massive upheaval. So maybe you haven't come home and found home trashed, as it were. But maybe you can relate to a life that is constantly up and down. And the question becomes, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the reality of coming from the highs to the lows? Is God the same God in the high as He is in the low? And how do we pursue Him in the same moments? We know that God is the same. And so we're forced to look at the example of David himself. So I'm going to read these first couple verses in 1 Samuel chapter 30. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. Now this is um, narrative irony here because remember David has told the king uh, of, of Gath that he is conducting raids in the Negev against the Jewish people when really he's fighting the Amalekites. And so now there actually is a raid in the Negev against the Jewish people and it's the Amalekites fighting back against David because they know all of Philistine is off, all of the Philistines are off to fight the Israelites. They've attacked Ziklag and they've burned it and have taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. And what this meant is that they were going to be sold into slavery. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength to weep anymore. Have you ever felt that? David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So not only is David coming back to finding everything in this world that he has built gone, but now also all of the men who once called him captain and followed him at every twist and turn, want to kill him. They want to stone him. They want to be gone with him. And the author rightly notes that David is distressed, to say the least, right? He's distressed. Imagine the circumstances of David. I need to pause for just a moment and just comment on this. This is not the main gist of it, but it's, it's low-hanging fruit. We need to talk about it. It's easy for us to look at a situation like this and say of those men, why would they be like this towards David? He's created a safe place for them. Uh, he's led them in battle. They've been victorious at every twist and turn. They believe that he's God's anointed. He's going to be king. They've heard it proclaimed over him time and time again. And now when they come back, and find everything gone, they've quickly turned on him as if he caused it to happen. And after all, David has lost everything too. But, this is the way of humanity. Isn't it? 
I mean, this is the way of the Israelites, and the Israelites are just a microcosm of humanity in general, and that means, oh, by the way, you and I. The Israelites are the same Israelites who, when they see the Red Sea parted, and they walk on dry ground through the whole sea, and then when the Egyptian army comes after them, they see them wiped out by God folding down the seas on them. Then immediately thereafter, when they are in the wilderness, they start saying things like, why did we ever leave? We should go back. And oh, by the way, Moses, you stink as a leader and we're done with you. And that's us. We are the best grumblers the world has ever known. We love it when God is coming through for us, and then the minute it seems like He isn't doing what we ask Him to do, we have the same bitterness and grumbling towards Him. This is a picture into my life. I don't know about yours. As I read this this week, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I'm one of these men of David. I would have done the same thing if I came back. Because this is the two things I think that we often do. Right? This is what I experience in my life and what I see in the lives of most people. We're great at grumbling when things don't go our way. And we also love to pass the blame on someone else. So here we are. David, this is your fault. And look what you've done to me. Even in the face of everything that he has done for them. And so I just wanted to pause for just a moment and ask the question, is this your perception of God? Is when God is crossing all of your T's and dotting all of your I's how you would like Him to, does everything jive well for you then? But when life throws a curveball at you, do you start asking God questions like, what's that all about? How could you do this to me? And my, my question is to you not to say, oh, I can't believe you do that. You're a horrible sinner. And why should you? No, the, the point is that God doesn't leave us even though we treat him like that, right? David is overwhelmed by this, this reality for his men, and he wants to, to, to envelop them and to know them and to love them and to care for them. And this is a picture of God for me that even though I'm quick to grumble and quick to blame, God doesn't say, you know what, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of your grumbles. I'm sick of your complaining, and I'm sick of you pointing your finger at me, even though I'm doing all these other things for you. And he says, I'm faithful, and I'm with you, and I'm constantly there. The bigger reality, probably, in this sense of the turmoil of life for David is that if this is happening to David, who's God's anointed, right? God's going to do unbelievable things through him as king, then you should probably expect that your life would be similar. If the king that God has chosen is not exempt from it, then neither am I. So there should be some expectation of the ups and downs of life. And so then we're faced with the question that I asked earlier, how do we handle it? How do we navigate the ups and downs? Do we just grip as hard as we can and hope the ride comes to an end soon? Have you ever been on a roller coaster? Um, maybe for the first time, or one that you didn't expect to be quite as scary as it actually was. And then you just kind of know, though, if you close your eyes and hold on, it'll be over in two minutes, and you can get off, and everything will be good. But life, if you try to function that way, it doesn't really work very well, does it? So how do we handle this reality for David? It's so interesting in verse 6, what is said of David. It says that he is strengthened in the Lord. 
strengthened in the Lord. There's a few things to note about this. The first is, if you were with us last week, you remember that Saul was very much uh, focused in on f- and hearing from God or discovering guidance from God or getting what he could get from God. And David, in his response of being strengthened in the Lord, is actually doing exactly the opposite of what Saul has done. Where Saul ran to find a way out of what he was experiencing, David ran to God himself. Do you see it? But David is strengthened in the Lord. So what does it mean to be strengthened in the Lord? It sounds like one of these things we read in the Bible sometimes, and we're just kind of wondering, what does that even mean, being strengthened in the Lord? I think there's a few narrative keys that we can pick up on here uh, that are really, really important. Let me read this with you. David was greatly, this is verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. You notice that when we read it the first time? The first reality of being strengthened in the Lord is the personal nature of God. That David is not just calling on a God, and he's not even just calling on the God, he's calling on his God. See, religion will tell you that there is a God, or that there is the God, But the Gospel says that the God is your God. And there is a radical difference between the two. One is far off and unknowable. And the other is nearby and completely knowable. And this is the reality of God. Theologians speak of it in this way. That God is, yes, transcendent beyond our knowledge and far. And yet at the same time, imminent very close and personal and knowable. You can know God. We read earlier in Psalm 139, the same way that God knows us, we're able to foster that kind of relationship with Him. In the upheaval of life, the way that we respond to it is to be strengthened in the Lord. And unless God is personal, to you, you won't experience this. See, religious formulas or, or statements of faith aren't going to help you in those moments. But a God who is your God is absolutely going to help you. I love in the Old Testament sometimes when, the, when someone who's speaking to God or speaking to the people says things like, the God of Jacob. Have you heard those things? Or the God of Abraham. And, and what this really means to us is this reality here. That the same God who was there for Abraham is there for you. And so you can say in the low moments of life or the high moments of life that the God of Jacob is my God. Or the God of Abraham is my God. The God of Paul, the God of Peter, is mine. 
And so it naturally leads us into the second reality that is, is woven in this text. The word strengthen is an interesting word in 1 Samuel. In fact, we came across it a few chapters back when David is meeting with Jonathan. Perhaps you remember this. And it says that Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord. It's the same uh, grammatical formulation here. And really what happens in that passage with Jonathan is that Jonathan is redeclaring the promises of God for David into his life. God has promised that you will be king. My father will not succeed against you. You'll be king and I will serve you. Your life will be spared. This is the way that Jonathan is strengthening David. So when David goes to be strengthened in the Lord, what do you think is happening? David is going to a personal God and declaring the promises of God over himself once more. Everything is gone. One one author said this. I think this is really good. When David returned to Ziklag, he no longer had his house. He no longer had his family. He no longer had his town. But he still had his God. And when David finds himself in that moment, he is reminding himself of the promises of God. God has anointed me as king. God has promised me that He'll see me through this time. God has given this this nation into my hands for leadership. God has promised to bless me. He has promised all of these things over me. David is reminding himself of these things. And just pause for a moment. Self-talk can be a really good thing so long as it is gospel self-talk and not just trying to pump yourself up for a difficult moment. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And you get in there, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can do this. Right? It's a little bit different than, than saying to yourself, God is with me no matter how this turns out. You see the difference? Gospel self-talk is radically important. It's so important that the ancient church and the Catholic church for a long time, and we've kind of gotten away from this because we... You know, when the Protestant church formed, everything kind of just did away with everything Catholic. There's very good things there. They had this thing called a centering prayer. And the reality of it is that basically throughout the course of the day, they would pray certain prayers that were meant simply to center them back in their identity in Christ. Because this world is always trying to define you as something other than you are not. And unless you are being practical about recentering yourself, you will begin to buy in to the world's definition of your existence, your worth, your value, etc., etc. Sometimes we need some gospel self-talk. When I was working at the bank and going to seminary, this is what I did. I don't know if you can do this at your workplace or not. But basically, every day around 3 o'clock, I went to the bathroom. I didn't have to go to the bathroom, but it was the only private place in the bank. And in the bank, at 3 o'clock, I would stand in the bathroom and I would declare over me who I was in Christ. I never wanted to work at a bank. I had all these ideas of what I would be. And here I was living with my parents, with my, my wife and two sons, going to school and working at a bank and listening to people come in and grumble all the time. And it was awful, and it was depressing, and it was difficult, and it would run me down. And if I didn't spend those moments saying, this is not who I am, this doesn't define me, this is a means to an end, this is a season that God has me in. And even if I'm at a bank for the rest of my life, 
God doesn't value me because of my vocation. He values me because of my creation. Not that I've created something, but that he's created me. And so these moments of speaking to a personal God who is right there and imminent and declaring over yourself the promises of God. I am not talking about a name it and claim it thing that you may sometimes hear on TV. Oh, just say it over yourself and you'll have it. I'm talking about speaking the gospel over yourself. Not, I'm going to be wealthy and then it's going to happen to you. Or I'm going to, everything's going to be good from here on out. That doesn't work. <laughs> People want that to work so that you can fund their ministries. Jesus has already declared something over you that is far greater than any of those things. And if you would begin to declare it over yourself as He does over you, the psalmist in 139 says that when he begins to think about the thoughts that God has about him, he is overwhelmed by them. And this is what it means. Listen, I believe that the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, before you put uh, your clothes on for the day, before you go brew your coffee, before you get the newspaper, before you pick up your Bible, before you begin to pray, before you get your kids ready, the first thing that you should do in the morning when you wake up is declare the Gospel to yourself. That this day, the Gospel is no less true than it was before. It will be no less true than it is in the future. That even in my failures, my God loves me. And no matter how this day turns out, God is not turning His back on me. And He's with me. That's a way to enter a world that is going to speak all kinds of words over you that are completely antithetical to the Gospel. That you're valued because of how much assets or resources or money you have. That you're valuable because of how you can perform in your job. Because of the relationships and the prestige and the power that you have or wield or influence in this world. None of that is true. And if you buy into those, then you are just holding on in the roller coaster ride of life. But if you start declaring the promises of God, listen to some of these over you. Just get in a quiet moment with God and say, Jesus, you said in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. That's a promise for you. The prophet Isaiah speaks the words of God in Isaiah chapter 40. God gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, God will supply all of your needs in his glorious riches. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Isaiah records the words of God in Isaiah chapter 2. You will keep Him, meaning us, in perfect peace when our mind is stayed on you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that no temptation will overcome you except what you are able to bear in Christ. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 that He who began a good work in you will see it through until its completion. And then Paul writes these words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That every promise that God makes in the nature of God means yes. In other words, if He said it, you can take it to the bank. What would it be like in the roller coaster ride, the upheaval of life, instead of riding the highs and lows? to remember the personal nature of God and in that genuine, intimate connection to declare the Gospel 
and the promises of God over yourself. To constantly be centered in who you are in His view as opposed to who you are in the views of other people in this world. David was hearing a very different narrative from his men. You're worthless and I'm going to kill you. You've ruined my life, I can hear them saying. Imagine the weight of that. Then he goes into a quiet moment with God and is strengthened and he hears from the creator of the universe, hey, I created you just how you are. And I love you. And guess what? Sometimes you've succeeded and a lot of times you've really screwed up. But I still love you just as much as I do when you succeed. And you're still my king. And I've still got a future for you. This is the reality of being strengthened in God. And then you see what happens as the outcome from it. Listen to this as the story continues. Verse 7, David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? See, Saul got it wrong. He wanted guidance, not God. David came to God and as a result got guidance. You see it? It was a personal God declaring His promises over us and allowing us to enter His presence. There's three P's. That's good homiletics. A personal God declaring His promises over us and inviting us into His presence. Why was Abiathar and the Ephod there? Because in the Old Covenant, that's how he had access to God. But God understood that He wasn't just there to get what He could get from Him. See, after being strengthened in God, David hears from God. He doesn't go to hear from God. He hears from God as a result of going to God Himself. We get this wrong a lot of the time. And then as soon as David hears from God, when he asks these questions to them, were we overtaken by a raiding party? And if I go, should I go after them? And if I go after them, will we be successful? And God says to him, go after them, and you will overtake them. And David mounts the forces and says, we're going. See, because for David, being strengthened in the Lord produces obedience. There is no hesitation in David's mind. What we'll come to find out is that this raiding party is numbered in the thousands. And David's going with 400 men eventually. 600, but 200 don't make the whole trip because they're tired. But David doesn't stop to ask questions. He hears from God and he goes. There's something about obedience. We keep talking about this, but it is so gospel-centered, so real, so important for us to know. This is what religion says about obedience. Religion says that you obey God so that you can be blessed by God. The Gospel says you are blessed by God and as a result you obey God. And they are radically different. If you are trying to live the religious life of trying to earn God's favor, being obedient, trying to live the Christian life as best you can, as best you can, because then maybe God will bless you. That's backwards, man. You are blessed. Declare the promises over yourself. This is not name it and claim it, but it's the Gospel. And as a result, what you will find is obedience in your life. David doesn't ask questions. He hears from God and he goes. And what we find is that in David's obedience, 
it is met by God's providence. David's obedience is met by God's providence. I'll tell the story without reading it here. These guys head off, right? Think about this for a moment. They, say, they ask God two questions, and God gives them two answers. Should we go after them? God says yes. Will we overtake them? God says yes. That's it. Now, if I'm leading this party, I need more information. First of all, which way did they go? Right? David has no idea where to go. Can you imagine this? He probably has a good idea. It's one of those three Amalekite tribes that he's been raiding, but it could have been any of them. And who knows which way they left from there. Which way do they go? Who should I take? How long is it going to take? What supplies do I need? But David doesn't ask any of those questions, and there's wisdom in that for us. Because David's obedience is met by God's providence. As David sets out, they come across a lone Egyptian slave who is desperate for food and water. He has been left behind by this Amalekite raiding party. And when David comes across him, they feed him, and they give him something to drink, and they say, did the Amalekites come and ransack our city? And the man negotiates a truce with David and then says, I'll take you right to them. And the Egyptian man takes David and his men all the way to this Amalekite raiding party. They are celebrating. The text says they're basically throwing a party because of their victory. And in the midst of this party, David and his men show up and they reclaim everything that has been lost and much more. Listen, how often do we wait around for all the specifics when God is simply saying, go? The story reminds us that our obedience when God says go is met by God's providence along the way. If you are like me, I need certain boxes checked off before I'm ready to saddle up the proverbial horses, right? If I'm going to do this, because God's calling you to some big things maybe, I need, to, you know, I need some things to And Sometimes God's gracious in doing that, and sometimes He's not. Listen, I know for a fact that this morning God is urging you to do something. Maybe it's to, to restore your marriage. Maybe it's to, to work on certain areas of your life. Maybe it's a shift in some direction that you're heading. Maybe it's more involvement in a certain place. I have no idea what it is. I can't tell you what it is. I know He's urging you to things because that's His way. And can I just plead with you as a pastor, as I plead with my own soul, if He's saying go, then do it. And the rest will work itself out. Will you have to make decisions along the way? Yes. Right? David had to decide, I'm going to head south. I'm going to head west. I'm going to head southwest. Here's how many men we're going to go. When David hits hits a certain point, 200 of the men can't go any further. He needs to decide, should I leave them here or force them to go? God doesn't show up and say, here's what you need to do. And our lives are that way. We are so desperate, I think, because we're we're scared of being wrong. And if we're wrong, God's going to disown us. I think this is how it works for us. That we we are terrified to make decisions in the move of God. Listen, if you've declared the promises of God over you, that you are loved even in the midst of your failure, and you are strengthened in God, then when God says go, you will be obedient to go. Not tortured in your own mind 
wondering if God's going to, you know, be punitive against you because you don't do everything right. And you're going to make decisions, some of which are going to be right, some of which aren't going to be the best. And guess what? God's providence is big enough to accomplish His kingdom work whether you choose to go south or north. Right? Do you believe that, church? So maybe the message for you this morning beyond anything is, if you're hearing God say go, go. And trust, even though it might not be simple, even though it might not be easy, even though the direction lights may not show up at every twist and turn, that He will be with you and that His outcomes will come to pass. I love the psalm. We used to sing this when I was a kid. There was an old song. That the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Right? And the beautiful imagery of this is, is that the psalmist is basically saying that God is simply illuminating the next step. Right? A lamp unto my feet that ultimately, as I look back, has lit up an entire path. We would just love God to turn on the heavenly uh, floodlights and show us the whole way. But He is constantly faithful to show you the next step. And if He is saying go, then go. Being strengthened in the Lord produces obedience. And obedience is met by God's providence. And then David and his men overtake the Amalekites and they are blessed even beyond belief. And then they have all of this bounty of livestock and, and grains and resources to deal with. And David, who is the anointed king, could just say, this is mine. But he doesn't. He says, I'm going to divide this up to everyone. Now, I told you before that there were 200 men who were too tired for the journey. That, I would have signed up for that duty. right? I would have been like, oh, no, no further. One, because I don't want to march. Two, because I don't want to fight. Right? And so if, if you want to keep going and you're allowing me to stay here and, and guard, it says they guarded the baggage. I think I could do that. Right? I could be a baggage guardian. And so they're off. And so when they come back, David even gives an equal portion to the people who guarded the baggage, it says. Now, the 400 people who fought with David were royally ticked off, as you and I would have been. Right? You risked your life. You were in the, the blood, sweat, and fighting with the swords against thousands of men and were victorious. These dudes were sitting by a brook watching a bunch of bags. And David says, they get just what you get. And they get just what I get. And it says that they, they were furious with David. And David said, no. And then David does something unbelievably remarkable. Even though they're infuriated with David even though they're claiming that they deserve more than the other people, and I would wager to guess these are the same people who wanted to stone David earlier because he had made the wrong choice. This is what he calls them. He calls them my brothers. These men who have gone against him time and time again. He calls them my brothers. This is remarkable. What's more, David doesn't just divide the plunder amongst this whole group of fighting men, he sends portions of it back into Judah, to all the elders of Judah, and to the remotest parts of the kingdom, so everyone gets a blessing from what God has done. Because at the end of the day, being strengthened in the Lord produces obedience. Obedience is met by God's providence. And the natural result of it, I think, is generosity. See, generosity isn't something you 
muster up in your own effort. It's something that comes naturally when you are immersed in the gospel of generosity from God. That God has delivered David in this way? How could he think of anything other than blessing others the way that he has been blessed? Now, the men have a very different perspective. The men have a perspective of entitlement. Listen, we fought, we deserve, we've earned. And those guys guarding the bags, they didn't earn anything. And certainly the elders in Judah, who haven't been standing up for you this whole time against Saul, they don't deserve anything either. Right? It's the culture of entitlement. And guess what? That's yours and my culture too. Way too often, isn't it? I'm entitled to what I have, therefore it is mine. But this is what David says about what he receives. Brothers, this is a gift from God. Read it later. A radically different worldview. That what he has been granted, even though he fought for it, is God's gift to him, and therefore it is right to share it. Friends, I do not know if you are at the high point or at the low point. I just did those backwards with my fingers. If you are at the high point or the low point, if you are climbing to the high point, or if you are flying down to the low point. But here's what I know. That the way you deal with the upheaval of life is to be strengthened in the Lord. To find a personal God, not a God of religion. And to remind yourself of His promises to you. And to continually enter into His presence. And as you hear from Him, you will find that your obedience is a natural result of being strengthened in Him. And then you will find that your obedience is met by God's providence. And if you've been blessed by God along the way, the result ought to be generosity. Blessing others so that you can call them into the same thing that God has done for you. Friends, as always, in this story, there's a bigger story to be told. David is not you. He's not me. David is Jesus. Let me tell the story very quickly once more. There was upheaval in David's life, was there not? Think of the trajectory of Jesus who enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, coronated as king, and on Thursday night finds himself pleading for his life in a garden alone. And what does he do in that garden in the midst of his upheaval? He seeks out God. And in the gut-wrenching moments of prayer, he is strengthened in his God. So much so that it produces in him what? Obedience. Not my will, but your will be done. And when Peter tries to lead the rebellion against the arresters, Jesus not only puts Peter aside, but heals the man who he wounds and willingly enters into the journey that God has for him. And what do we find in Jesus' obedience? It is met by God's providence. We call it the resurrection. That in Jesus' great sacrifice, God's kingdom will is accomplished. His sacrifice is accepted and vindicated. That's what the resurrection is all about. And when he comes out of the tomb, his message for the world is, there's a portion of this for everyone. I would have done very differently. I'd have been, look what I did. This is all mine. 
But he says no. Not only is it for people who it seems like they deserve it even though they don't. Guess what? This salvation is for everyone who just sat by the bags and did nothing to earn this. That's me. I did nothing to earn the favor of God. I'm not good enough. I'm not religious enough. I'm not anything enough. I'm I'm worse than a baggage watcher. And yet Jesus says there's an equal share for you. And not just to the reaches of His circle, but He says, I'm sending it to the ends of My kingdom. To the ends of this earth. This is the Gospel. That in Jesus, even in the upheaval of His life, as He is strengthened in God once more, He is obedient, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, even obedient unto death. And in His obedience, He is met by God's providence, which is the resurrection where God declares sacrifice accepted for the whole world. And Jesus says, there's an equal share available for all who would enter My kingdom and call Me King. So this morning, in your life of upheaval, maybe even more than being strengthened by God, is for you to say, you know what? It's not about me. There's a king. And I'm his servant. And in him, I have a share of everything that I need. And his name is Jesus. Jesus.